Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, everybody. It's Mark Graben. It's episode 461 for October 27th, 2022. My guest today is Gautier Duval. He's the director of the Lean Center of Excellence at a company called Variable. So you will learn more about him in a minute. Later on, you'll hear more about his company. For links, you can look in the show notes for more information, or you can go to leanblog.org slash 461. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to uh, the podcast. Our guest today is Gautier Duval. He's uh, the director of the Lean Center of Excellence at a company called Variable, and that's spelled V-E-R-Y-A. B-L-E, if you want to go look them up online. Uh, but Gautier has applied and, and taught Lean for over 18 years, including uh, time with Freudenberg NOK, which is an auto supplier. They were one of the companies featured in the book Lean Thinking. Um, he was with Simpler Consulting. He's done work with other manufacturing companies in the U.S. and Europe. So uh, Gautier, welcome to the podcast. How, how are you doing? Thanks, Mark. I'm doing great. Thanks. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you're here today. There's uh, a lot that uh, we're we're going to dive into um, on on topics including you know uh, kaizen events and 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 other um, forms of of continuous improvement, but then we're going to talk about you know some issues involving organizational development and learning organizations, and uh, I think it's going to be a really really good discussion here today. Um, but you know as I as I tend to do, um, Gautier, uh, you know, I like to ask people, you know, I kind of come to call it the lean origin story. Like how, how where, and when, you know, like what, what, what's your story where you got introduced to lean? Yeah. Uh, my story, I, I won't say it's an introduction to lean, but it really framed lean for me ahead of time. And it was my very first real job. Uh, I was a management consultant in a steel company. Um, and my particular area of responsibility was the tool preparation department. And I'd been given this objective to basically improve the, uh, the productivity in there. I rapidly found out that the, the key here was not so much to look at the balance of workload to capacity, but actually the key was the changeover process. And so I had to kind of pivot and uh, turn it into a changeover reduction process. Nevertheless, I mean, not at all. Again, I had no clue what lean was about. Never heard the term lean or TPS before, but it was something that I, I had to engage in. And the funny part and why I say this was kind of a, uh, a, a, a framing episode for me was at the report out where everybody presented their projects, uh, the chairman of the company actually uh focused on this particular project, not so much for how much money it's saved, but because he said, this is something that's going to improve our ability to sell um, higher margin products, but products that are in smaller batches, and therefore you know, you've opened that to us. Uh, that's the main value of what you've done. And it was funny because neither I nor my project director had any clue that this was really the value of what our project was. So it was um, very eye-opening. And when I later learned about Lean, I think it helped me to really immediately click and engage and just love the whole uh, the whole Lean thing. Yeah. So did you have lessons or coaching or resources of, you know, or kind of TPS or lean based on, on how to go about the changeover reduction? Like you kind of sound like you had to kind of figure out how to go about it that way. Yeah. Uh, if I rem- yeah. I remember actually really struggling to see, okay, how am I going to do this? Cause it's very complex, right? This is not a changeover on a machine. This is changeover on a, what was, I think the largest steel rolling mill in Europe or even outside of Japan. And so if you're familiar with how we make steel beams, uh, you start with a large slab of red hot steel, uh, which gets uh, hammered into a, a longer shape. And then that goes through the, through the rolling mill. It basically goes through a series of gigantic uh, steel drums or steel rollers that gradually shape the steel into uh, I-shaped beam. 
And so you have to think about uh, what changeover means there. It means basically changing these multi-ton uh, steel rollers, the radius of each one of those wheels is several feet. Um, and it required, I think it required something like 17 or 18 people to do the changeover. Mm. Yeah. And and it so sounds like, it sounds far more complex than, uh, you know, uh, changing the dyes in a, a simple press Correct. machine or stamping yeah. machine. Not uh, that those are simple, of that, but how, right, yeah. Yeah, and on top of that, you also have to synchronize with movement of, uh, of your overhead cranes. Uh, which are also used in the other parts of the process, like the saw. So it was very complex. Uh, I used a, uh, I, I, I knew nothing about SMED, obviously. Um, and, and so I used a PERT, you know, uh, program evaluation or review technique. And I remember making a uh, precedent chart, uh, you know, a large piece of, uh, of paper and just drawing out each and every little step and figuring out which which one was a predecessor mm -hmm. um, and just figuring out this way uh, and then doing again charts so it was not it was not your usual um, cement technique but nevertheless it achieved achieved our goals yeah I mean and it sounds like well a couple of things come to mind like one what I hear you describing um, you know regardless of terminology we might use is like the power of studying the work. Like I'm an industrial engineer, so I have a bias towards observing and deeply studying work and then thinking about what steps can be eliminated, rearranged. I mean, it sounds like, you know, it's just kind of that discipline. I, 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 there, there's, there's helpful concepts that come from SMED, quote unquote, but I mean, it sounds like you, you went about this in a, a methodical way instead of like just looking for, you think of what other organizations might do. They didn't go look for a best practice. Like there was studying, here's how it works here. How do we make it better? Yeah, there, there's really no shortcut for going into the, into the details, getting, you know, getting your hands dirty, literally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And then you know, the other thing that jumps out, I think in your, your, your discussion of the context of that, it sounds like it wasn't, improvement for the sake of cost cutting. It sounds like it was improvement to enable things like, you know, you mentioned uh, revenue and um, it sounds like, you know, maybe uh, providing better customer service and, and, and growth in different ways, whether it's you know, revenue or volume, providing more value. That's different than quote unquote cost cutting, right? Correct. You know, and that's why it was so meaningful to me because initially my project was a pure cost-cutting project. Mm, I mean, that's mm. what I was asked to do. And that's kind of how I went about it with that objective. And then it was, um, it was during the presentation of the board house that all of a sudden, uh, you know, this, this chairman kind of really opened our eyes and, and showed us that there are things that are way more valuable to, to a company and just cutting costs. Yeah, yeah. So then what was your progression? I mean, you, you kind of alluded to, or you, you know, you said from that, you didn't really know lean. You you were doing things where you'd say, well, that was, you know, lean-ish, if you will. Like, yeah. so when, when what were some of the different steps there where, um, you know, clearly you did get into that you know, more formally, what, what, what happened next for you and for your learning? Right, yeah, this was really lean by accident. Uh, for me, it really started when uh, when I started working at, at Growth. Uh, so that was 2004, um, and at the time, we just moved actually to Europe. Uh, so my, we're, we were working in the States. My wife got transferred to Barcelona in Spain, and um, I just took up this job for uh, for, for consulting. And, and, uh, and real quick, and for, and for context, growth was kind of a um, an offshoot from Freudenberg and OK, right? Correct. Yeah, like growth was the name of the lean office at Freudenberg and OK. Uh, it stands for uh, get rid of waste through team harmony. There's two T's in growth. The two yeah. T's are not a typo. There are two T's, <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, and 
And so it was very successful. They, they, they kind of spun it off as an independent consulting business, uh, uh, still keeping a lot of relationship with Ferdenberg. I, mean, I, I, knew, I did a lot of Kaizen projects at Ferdenberg because uh, we still had that connection. But yeah, that was my real introduction to, to Lean because uh, all we did really was uh, we would do a Lean assessment followed by a number of projects. And, and, and so it was sort of an, so it had been growth, had been an internal group that started doing consulting, but then occasionally also kind of consulted back. Correct. Gordonberg, yeah. is that, was that fair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was that kind of uh, agreement, gentleman's agreement between the two entities, even though, you know, we were uh, tr- truly independent companies. And you joined there in 2004. Um, Joe Day was mentioned, featured, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Joe Joe Day had been the CEO and I I looked up real quickly. He retired in 2002. He was mentioned quite a bit in Lean Thinking. Yeah. Um, I've I've had a chance to meet him a couple of times, you know, because of being featured in Lean Thinking when I was at MIT, uh, students, we invited him to come speak in 1998. When he was, you know, still CEO, and I actually then ran across him, probably in about 2014 or 2015. In his retirement, he was, um, let's just say, on the board of a health system in Florida, and I was there as yeah, a consultant, yeah. and I had an opportunity to reconnect and uh, go have dinner um, with with him. But you know, so he he had already left. And you know, I'm just curious, though, like what your recollections were anyway of like, you know, the influence that he had that was hopefully, I'm assuming, still there. Yeah. In 2004-ish. So I, I never had the pleasure of meeting Joe directly. Uh, one of my best colleagues and friends at growth uh, was very close to Joe. Uh, in fact, he was discovered by Joe. But, you know, since uh, my experience was with the European branch, we really didn't didn't have many connections with with the U.S., but I yeah I know that Joe was involved um, in you know uh, a digital transformation of the health system. Yeah, and I think you know he was motivated to try to bring lean concepts, including lean leadership, um, in in into healthcare, and uh, he he was he was actually um, buddies with. Jack Welch, because they were retired CEOs who, if I remember right, they played golf together. But um, different approaches to leadership, shall we say? <laughs> and remember him? You know, I don't think you know he had no disrespect for Jack Welch, but he just there there was recognition of hey, there there, there was a different leadership mindset and mm-hmm. uh, a different style of of lean or otherwise there. But um, I, I want to get back to. Um, yeah, you talk about going to Europe. What 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 differences did you see in terms of um, trying to introduce lean as much as you could generalize? You know, Europe compared to the U.S. Um, yeah, it's always difficult to generalize. But I had the <clears throat> had the luck actually of traveling extensively um, as a consultant. So I I traveled all over Europe uh, to do different projects as well as as um, North America, uh, Brazil, Mexico, uh, Asia. And yeah, there are some, there are some real differences, at least from my personal experience. Uh, I always felt that doing a Kaizen project in the US was more rewarding, or let's say it was easier. My, my sense is that, uh, Participants in the U.S. come into a Kaizen project very open-minded, wanting to change. Um, in Europe, it really feels like you're dragging them to their death. <laughs> they uh, and there are some differences, you know, between let's say the Latin countries, France, Italy, Spain, uh, and the, the Northern European countries. Um, yeah, I would say in the in South and Southern Europe, um, people come 
with kind of a very um, defensive approach, I would say, you know, and, and they'll kind of uh, fight you every step of the way. But if you do manage to convince one or two key people, uh, then you've won it. You know? I mean, it's very important to have that, that human connection and to, and to work directly with people and show them what's in it for them, you know, that you're really trying to, to make their job easier. And once you've done that, um, you know, there, there are absolutely no issues. Uh, my experience with the Northern Europeans, like the Germans, um, it's quite of interesting that they'll, they're the most direct people I've ever met. <laughs> like Germans will give you feedback that anywhere else would kind of sound like your head has been cut off. Yeah. They don't mean it in a bad way. They're just being objective and telling you exactly what they think. Yeah. And they don't sweeten it. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Dutch um, are, you know, also have a reputation and they embrace this uh, reputation as, as being um, blunt, direct. Uh, Very blunt. You know, and you know, maybe they're, uh, yeah, that's interesting to think about in terms of, you know, there, there's a lot of lean healthcare activity in the Netherlands. I've had a chance to go a couple of times and there probably is real value in that ability to be direct and to expect directness in a way where maybe it helps separate, you know, it's the difference between, you know, uh, if you will, um, you know, uh, attacking an idea without the person you're debating the idea with feeling attacked personally, you know, maybe, maybe that, that maybe that's a cultural norm that, that, that could be helpful if everyone's on the same page with that expectation. It's all surprising sometimes coming in as a, a foreigner, somebody outside of that culture. But. Yeah. And I don't want to make it sound like uh, one model is better than the other. I right. think right. you can, you, you can achieve your goals anywhere. You just have, like you said, it's about knowing what to expect and, um, you, you know, interacting with people according to those expectations, to those norms. I mean, I was talking to somebody earlier, um, actually uh, for an episode of My Favorite Mistake, uh, a physician from, and a leader from, uh, from Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. And the conversation wasn't so much about lean, but he was talking about you know, what's often called Midwest nice, where people might be smiling and shaking their head. And it looks like there's agreement, but when, when there's really, when there's not, because people don't, again, we're generalizing, but the, this is a different cultural thing to try to battle through. What's the culture in our organization? Are we um, being superficially nice in a way that glosses over disagreements in a way that really kind of hurts us long term? Like, yeah, we don't have conflict, but like some level of conflict, if we can not have it be personalized, like it, that's that's necessary for improvement. Yeah, I think a lot of Americans have felt that working in the UK, right? Uh -huh. Where uh, what sounds like a very, very mild disagreement is actually a very strong yeah. and profound disagreement with you. Yeah, where, where if, if you don't know that, some, you don't know some of that context, you might not understand then the level yeah. of disagreement. And not take it seriously and ignore the person and what they're trying to tell you. And yeah. then that can rapidly uh, devolve into something much more difficult to catch up. Yeah, yeah. So one, one other topic I wanted to ask you about, you know, from, from your experiences, you, you, you use the term Kaizen projects. You know, a lot of people would talk about Kaizen events. Yeah. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes people say Kaizens when they mean Kaizen events. I, I think that's not a helpful shorthand. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, not, not just around terminology, but what, what, what are some of your thoughts around whether we call them quote unquote Kaizen projects, Kaizen events versus you know, kind of more ongoing, daily, continuous improvement? What, what are some of your experiences and thoughts? Yeah, well, Mark, let's go back to what you said about terminology. I think terminology is supremely important. Um, there are so many misunderstandings and so many um, cases where we have miscommunicated purely because uh, we're using the same word and assigning different meanings to the word. And it's not just about Kaizen. It's, to me, one of, one of my pet peeves is people using cycle time for lead time. Um, 
<clears throat> but there are many, many other examples. And Kaizen, yeah, I agree, is one of those areas where if you don't necessarily have the same understanding of what the word means, you can rapidly misunderstand what the other person is telling you. So, um, you know, for me, Kaizen is just anything that is an improvement. Uh, it doesn't matter what improvement has been done by somebody in a couple of minutes or whether it's a week-long event. Yeah, uh, just, yeah, on that real quick. Yeah, I think of... Um... Kaizen as sort of a overarching banner, a header. And then within that, to me, Kaizen events are a type of Kaizen. Small improvements, sometimes people call them just do it. So I like to call them just PDSA it's, you know, because we don't want to just do. Like they're, they're, whether, whether it's a, a, an A3 or a Kaizen event or a small Kaizen, like to me, the common thread is plan, do, study, adjust cycles, mm -hmm. large, medium, or small. Yeah, I mean, I did a I did a project recently uh, with a, a a machining operation um, here in Dallas, and you know we could have done it with a regular kaizen event, multi day, but it wasn't appropriate. And the best way to to achieve the goals actually was to uh, break it down, if you will, into just regular meetings every uh, two, uh, two or three weeks and define step-by-step, step, you know, what we're going to do and then give people the opportunity to do those things while they are carrying on with their daily job. Because I think this is one of the major issues with the rotation of lean is it's too disruptive quite often. Uh, sometimes we want it to be disruptive and I think it's okay to, to disrupt the mindsets. You have to do that. But if you're disrupting your daily production or disrupting your, your daily operations, then you're basically asking for trouble. You're asking for people to basically, you're giving them the excuse to say, this is really not working for us. or This is not the right way to do it. Yeah. And there's, yeah, I, I, I think it would be a mistake for someone to be like a little bit too stubborn to say the only way to do improvement is the classical five-day event. And then we see all kinds of adaptations. Um, if you force, you know, uh, shorter Kaizen events, if you're going to force everything to be five days, that, that could be wasteful. It could just kind of, you know, why, why is it not, uh, it, it doesn't have to take that long or what you're describing. Sometimes it's done a little bit more over time, but yeah. similar thought process in terms of planning, you know, I think even the classic "quote unquote" week-long kaizen event. There, there, there's, there, there's the planning time, then there's the event, and then there's follow-up. It's never just a week. Correct. I think it really comes from the consulting uh, yeah. constraint, right? Because consultants have to basically fit everything into a week-long trip, and so they kind of saw. At least that's been my experience. Right? That's some of the history. We of sized our kaizens so that they would fit within our travel schedule. Yeah. But then there's always that hypothesis around sizing. We think, like, unless you've gotten really good at sizing it, there, there's two different errors. You could have chosen a problem that's too big, yeah, or you could have chosen a problem that was too small. So if it's yeah. too small, I mean, I've had end the event early, I guess, right? Yeah, I've had plenty of variation in terms of what I achieved on those week long events. Uh, sometimes I didn't achieve my goals. Sometimes I went above. On average, it was about right, but yeah, the, the sizing is really difficult. Yeah, I mean, even with experience, there are things that you don't know, and maybe you get better at testing assumptions to yeah. make sure that you're not surprised by things that you didn't know. Well, but you mentioned the preparation phase, right? And I think um, that's what a lot of lean practitioners have learned to do is to spend. Um, three or four weeks prior to the event itself in preparation. And that certainly is a big help in terms of making sure that you, that you don't have large deviations. I think for consultants, it's a bit more difficult to do that. If you're outsiders, um, yeah. You're outsiders. And basically when uh, you're working purely, often you're purely working on the delivery phase and there's very little time left for preparation and follow-up which I think is a shame, really. But, uh, yeah. do, 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 do you think um, outside consultants tend to try to direct internal folks to do the prep 
in the follow-up then? That, that's been my experience. Uh-huh. And it works, you know, it depends uh, who, who your internal clients are. If, if they have some prior experience of Kaizen, that works fine. But if you're dealing with a client who is just starting on their lean journey and they do not have uh, experienced um, people uh, to, to do this prep work and the follow-up work, then that becomes an issue. Yeah. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, there's growing pains in, in terms of the, the, the learning by doing where, you know, hopefully people are given an opportunity to learn from mistakes, to learn from their experience. Like to me, yeah. that's, I'm sure we'd, we'd love to quote unquote, do it right the first time, but that's not, I mean, that's maybe, maybe that's not always possible on complex things. I think, you know, good, good consultants would, will manage expectations based on what they know is going to happen. So again, I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to provide the same expectations to a company that is at the very beginning of the journey, uh, as opposed to one that is midway or is somewhat mature. Yeah. So one other thing I wanted to ask you about Kaizen events, um, to use that term, um, in terms of getting, you know, deciding who should be participating. And then in particular, the the ideal role for a senior leader. Yeah, I think it's always good to have managers and leaders in Kaizen simply because you don't learn just through theory. You have to actually live through the through the event and understand um, how the you know how, how the the team members change their perception of what is possible for me, regardless of how the event turns out in terms of what results you've achieved. One of your key goals as a facilitator is have I changed people's mind? Have I changed their expectation of what can be done? Um, And if you've you've done that, then uh, you've achieved a lot in terms of mindset, in terms of culture. So for me, it's really important that the leadership, especially top leadership, has that experience. Uh, sometimes it's a bit difficult, though, because uh, some, you know, I think the biggest, the biggest culture change actually is for the, the top leadership. From moving from being the person who provides the answer to everything and who provides the direction and, and, and tells people what to do to being the listener. That's sometimes a very, very big change. So, so um, what happens if you're in an event and senior leader is kind of falling back into some of those habits? You ever have to pull them aside or try to provide some coaching or reminders? I mean, that that's got to be awkward it, at times. It is kind of awkward. Uh, you know, it's the big difference between being a consultant and being an internal lean person. So, as a consultant, you. You don't have fear, I think, of confronting uh, your boss since that person is not your boss. Uh, I mean, I I try to treat everybody exactly the same way. Uh, It doesn't matter whether it is a team member who is disrupting the the work or whether it is the, the CEO. You have to treat them the same way. And that's the whole point, actually, you know. Um, I don't know if you do this when you do your, your Kaizen events, but I always start with what rules do we want to play with or play by? Uh, and I don't, I don't, I don't set the rules. Um, it has to be coming from the team themselves. Of course, as a facilitator, uh, even though you don't set the rules, you, you do have a, a great deal of influence on what mm-hmm. rule yeah. the, the team works with. But having said that, I, I did have actually, it's only been once in my entire lean career, but I did have one case where I actually had to fire, and it was the president of the company, by the way, had to fire the, com- the president of the company from the, his own Kaizen. But to to, to kick really him out, not, not funny. I mean, he wasn't fu- kicking him out of the event. Basically. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. saying fire, but really it yeah. was just yeah. saying, I think it would be best for you not to come back tomorrow. And what, what was the behavior that prompted you to do that? The behavior was just that this person was so controlling yeah. that this person was basically um, 
yeah, taking over the entire Kaizen and not letting others speak and really monopolizing the whole Kaizen event, which was obviously antithetical to the whole, to the whole concept of Kaizen. So after trying, you know, as smoothly as I could to give him just private one-on-one feedback during the break. And he said, yes, I will. Uh, I understand not changing his behavior. Uh, I mean, it took me two days. I really struggled with, do I do this or not? Um, but actually it turned out to be a, a good decision. I was, as I said, I was pretty much afraid of what would happen. Uh, but the effect on the rest of the team members was amazing. This is like the team members all of a sudden blossomed and, uh, yeah. and, and did a fantastic work. So how, how did that leader take this news? Like, did, did, they, did they stop off? Did they argue with you about it? Did they kind of like, yeah, okay. Did, like, did they begrudgingly accept that? I, well, um, in this case, the leader was obviously not happy. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I would say it really in the end, it didn't change his behavior much. So beyond the event, it didn't change the behavior. Correct. I mean, he was already yeah. not exactly cooperative, but he was not the top client. The top client was in Germany. So it wasn't his decision to either kick you yeah, out. It was, or to yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it could have been also why he wasn't very cooperative to begin with. Yeah. It mm-hmm. wasn't his decision uh, to have to, to have our team um, in in his company. Well, so that that possibility raises you know some interesting ideas around the acceptance of change. I mean, if if to be you know if 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 they were being told to do this that i mean there's some basic psychology around people okay well if you're going to tell me to do it i'm going to you know push there's almost this reflex to push back yeah against being told to do something so i wonder there might have been some opportunity even within that organization within that enterprise to better engage that leader than they might have been willing or able to to embrace this more Yes, I would say, I think it's, you know, I, I think it is something that any lean person has to learn more about is um, the whole field of organizational development. Um, I think it is so important if you're, if you're trying to do a lean transformation, that you really understand what's, um, you know, what change means and how organizations behave and how how the organizational structure and the organizational culture uh, drives the behavior of the people that you work with. I I feel that a lot of our lean um, colleagues don't pay enough attention to organizational development. And that phrase, and I think, you know, we can dig deeper into that. Um, You know, Toyota uses the phrase organizational development or OD. Mm-hmm. A lot of the former Toyota people that I've worked with in various capacities or learned from, uh, m- very many of them were from, you know, the, uh, the OD, you know, part of, of, of Toyota. Um, in, in, in your experience, even more broadly, how, how is, you know, OD as a, a concept or a department different than HR and human resources? Oh, that's a great topic, Mark. I feel that one of the weaknesses of OD is that it is, it's really HR. I mean, it it is very much an HR thing. And I think that's, I mean, I'm not an OD practitioner, uh, but I think it hurts OD to, to be, you know, to, to be stuck to this uh, HR department. I, I always feel, at least in my interactions and past with OD people that's, uh, they need to, they, they would really benefit from reaching out and working more closely with their operational excellence or produce improvement to colleagues. So it I sounds like there's, there's kind of an opportunity to bridge that gap coming a little bit from both directions. Lean people. I wish. Yes. Hey, reach out to, to, to OD, OD, reach out to lean or operational excellence. There's, you know, back to terminology, there's all kinds of 
um, different terms, but like when, when you talk about the, the, the benefits of, of why building that bridge and, and, and how would you explain the why and, and, and the benefits from doing that? The way I, I think the way I would explain it is uh, OD ought to be a foundational um, practice for lean. In other words, if we think about the, the sequence of implementation, I believe we ought to start with OD and then begin the, the lean program. And I think that a lot of, you know, we all know that a lot of lean initiatives don't end up uh, meeting expectations. And I don't know if you want to qualify them as straight out failures or semi-failures, but it's a fact that a lot of lean yeah, initiatives well. don't work out very well. And I, and, you know, in the, in the lessons learned, we always talk about leadership is, was not on board or the mindset was not on board. Well, that's all OD. And I think yeah. that, um, you know, we have to start with the beginning and that's really working hand in hand with the OD specialists and practitioners. Yeah. Comes back to uh, becoming a running theme of um, terminology and definitions. How do you define failure? If it's a quote unquote failure, um, you know, there, there are different numbers thrown around. It feels like I'm, I'm, I'm sharing a pet peeve now of numbers thrown around of, you know, whatever X percent of lean initiatives fail. I'm like, well, what, what, what do you mean by fail? And I think, you know, th th this number sort of points back, like, if I remember right, the more, the more precise terminology or it was something around did not meet expectations. Well, that that's different, right? Yeah. Not meeting expectations versus failing. And then it steps back and, you know, you step back and ask, well, were the, were the expectations unrealistic or not? So, you know, the, yeah. the, we, if we're loose with our terminology around these things, you know. If your expectation is that you're going to become your industry's Toyota, maybe that's. Uh, or how quickly, right? And how quickly, maybe, yeah. Maybe absolutely. you could do that, but it's not a six-month project, right? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably not. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, there, there's. There's. Back, you know, back back to you know terminology and, and phrases that get thrown around. Um, I mean, the word lean itself. Ten different organizations that would say we're quote unquote implementing lean. You could ask what what does implementing mean, and they might be doing any range of things that are very different. You know, kind of, you know, full holistic lean model, if you will, versus like oh, we're using some lean tools. Like th those those are not one in the same. Um, another term that gets thrown around, maybe sometimes loosely, is a learning organization. And I don't know that's something that's important to you. Like how how would you define that term? Like what what, what do you think that term should really mean? Like more specifically? Yeah, I think that you know talking about expectations and goals. I believe that from an OD perspective, that's the goal. Is that we become a learning organization. And what it means for me is the ability for the organization to discuss um, threats without bec becoming defensive. Uh, I think what, you know, when you look about, when you look at uh, companies that have really, um, truly failed, right? It's because it's not because they were not aware of the threats that ultimately killed them. It's because being aware of the threats, they decided either to suppress discussion about it or to um, pursue one way without then questioning the, that one way. Um, and you know, <clears throat> when we talk about learning organization. For me, there's one person who really embodies a great understanding of what it means to become a learning organization, and that's Chris Argerus. I mean, if you, if you were to ask me who are my, my top gurus, right? I mean, obviously, I'd say 
Ono for, for lean and Drucker for strategy management and Deming for systems thinking. But when it comes to the organization and the culture, I would put Argyrus as my top, my top inspiration. And Even I, though I'll, I'll be upfront, you know, uh, I encourage everybody on the podcast to go and read Chris Argyris. Mm-hmm. His books are not exactly an easy read. I mean, it's yeah. very academic in the style, mm-hmm. but um, it's full of insights and full of really uh, important ideas. So I've, I've heard the name. I um, am more familiar with the work of Peter Senge, who is also one of the first names that comes to mind, I think, in terms of... Um, Systems thinking, learning organizations. So, t- tell us more about like what 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 stands out to you from the work of Chris Ardris and 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 why people why you know tell us a little bit more about why people should be reading his work and 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 the connections that they might draw out that are useful. Um, so, Chris Ardris, first of all. Uh, to give you some context, he was, I believe, the dean of the College of Business at Harvard. So um, very, very distinguished researcher and practitioner. And what he wrote about was how um, the, what he called the defensive mindset. He called it a model one mindset. How that's basically drove the way organizations are structured and how the way these organizations structure are structured also reinforces the mindset. So he was also very much a systems thinker because he identified all of those feedback loops within the organization. And, um, you know, he, he really understood how that defensive mindset was so integrated into the way we think that we perform according to that mindset, uh, I, I would say without without ever thinking about it because it is automatic. So um, he kind of, Argerus kind of uh, formalized this defensive mindset. By the way, it started very, uh, very much by accident. Uh, it started with him um, doing some studies, I think it was with government workers and realizing when, when he was um, analyzing these studies that he did, that everybody, pretty much everybody uh, behaved and thought in the exact same way. And this, this way was really what he called the defensive thinking mindset. It starts with the idea that we all have certain uh, governing values that are inculcated right from the start. Like, uh, one of the reasons why we all have this common model one defensive mindset, according to Argyrus, is we acquire that during childhood. And we, all children go through the same phase, which is if you're a child, you basically have no power, right? You are um, dependent on others for everything. And so the survival mechanism for a child is to develop this um, the, these action strategies that work very well, but those of course, as an adult, don't work so well if you are in a situation where you need to learn to change. Um, so if you think about these governing values that drive defensive mindsets, they're, they're things that I think would, uh, would be accepted by everybody. It's, uh, you know, you achieve your goals, but you achieve your goals through unilateral control. In other words, you don't depend on others to achieve your goals. You want to maximize your winning and you want to minimize your losing. You want to suppress negative feelings and you want to be perceived as acting rational, right? I mean, it's not controversial. Everybody would say, yeah, that makes sense. Where it becomes interesting is what kind of action strategies we have developed and internalized so that it's now a habit that we, the way we achieve those governing values through the action strategies are things like, I'm going to advocate for my position but I'm going to do so in a way that does not invite you to test my assumptions or my reasoning in any way. I'm going to evaluate you or I'm going to make attributions about your thoughts, but I'm not going to test those, right? Because 
just in the way that I'm kind of keeping things to myself, I know that you're keeping things to yourself. Therefore, the only way I can understand you is by making evaluations and attributions. So there are a whole series of action strategies that we develop and internalize. And those action strategies, even though they work very well, if you're in a routine situation, if you're in a situation where you have to deal with real threats, then they're totally counterproductive. And so he called this um, um, skilled um, incompetence, he called it skilled incompetence because we become very skilled at these action strategies, but they make us incompetent when it comes to being able to learn from our errors. Yeah. Wow. Um, there's a lot to think about there. It's a lot, yeah. The, um, the word threat, is, is, is that referring to, let's say, um, external threats to the business or anything that's like interpersonally threatening? Um, like a so problem. It's the whole range, but ultimately... Just, yeah, ultimately, it is about how I, as an individual, perceive what you're telling me or what you're doing as I perceive it as a threat or I perceive it as a potential embarrassment. Okay. So if you say something that um, would perhaps embarrass me, I'm going to try to suppress that. Yeah. And, and of course, and I'm not going to volunteer any information to you that would in return embarrass me or that would threaten my, my goals. Yeah. So is, is that reaction, that defensive mindset, is it similar to what people might call um, knee jerk reactions or um, thinking of, uh, is it related to Daniel Kahneman who talks about type one thinking and type two thinking or fast thinking and slow thinking it, is, is, yeah. is this sort of like knee-jerk, fast-thinking responses? So, yeah, I don't think it's the same thing as the system one, system two of Karma. Um, no, this is, yeah, I, I would really separate the two. Uh, but it is knee-jerk in the sense that, again, it's been internalized that we perform this behavior without even thinking about it. And one of the one of the countermeasures that uh, Karma, uh, that uh, Argerus has developed, because, of course, he talks about this model one mindset. The solution to that model one mindset is not to do the opposite. The solution is to develop a new set of habits, of mental habits, which he calls model two. And one of the things that he that he explains, um, you know, is it's really like it's, it's a bit like learning tennis. He says it's about the same level of effort and um, and practice over months. But if you practice it every day, then you're going to be able to acquire those new habits. And the idea is not that this replaces the old mindsets. The old mindset still has its place. When you're in a routine situation, it works fine. It's when you are in those special situations where the organization or yourself or your team, you need to learn and you need to address something that is perceived as a threat. Then you have to use those new habits. Yeah. And he says, you know, one of the things you do, one of the habits is to slow down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So resist your temptation to immediately come back with an answer. Slow mm -hmm. down your thinking. Yeah. Yeah, that gives me that gives me pause. I'll think about that later instead of pausing and thinking about it now. But it, it also makes me think a little bit of uh, the one time I saw the late Stephen Covey speak in person at a Shingo Institute event. One of the, you know, he was talking about one of, the, one of his themes of um, putting a gap between stimulus and response. Sounds similar to some of what yeah. you're making me think. I think that was here. a quote from Viktor Frankl, actually. Yes, actually. Yes, between yes. stimulus did a, did a and response, did a there's a space, and that space is where your liberty lies, or something like that. I don't remember yeah. the exact quote, but a very, very striking quote, yes. Yeah, yeah and you're right. Covey did credit him. Um but I, I think, you know, uh, Covey, I remember him adding, you know, some thoughts about thinking of, you know, how, how do we, what can we do in terms of behaviors and habits to, to make sure that that space is there, of not mm -hmm. shrinking that space to where it really becomes just reflexive stimulus and response and, exactly. and, and allowing, yeah. allowing higher order thinking uh, to rule instead of our um, reptile brain, as it sometimes called right fight and flight 
fight or flight response and, 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 and traps that we, that we fall into. So uh, a lot to think about there. So um, our guest again today, uh, Gautier Duval, um, wanted to ask you, tell us a little a bit, a little bit about Variable, the company. The, web, the website is variableops.com, V-E-R-Y-A-B-L-E, ops.com. Tell, you know, tell us about the company. What, what are the problems that, that you solve? Um, so the problem we solve is how do you apply just in time beyond materials? Uh, you, know, you have three factors of production, as we all know. We've got to do anything. You need materials, you need people, and you need equipment. And lean today, as it's structured, is predicated on the idea that neither labor nor equipment are truly flexible, and therefore we do leveling. Um, and what Variable does is really it is a digital marketplace that connects businesses with operators or really independent contractors. And but it's it's really shrinking the batch size of labor um, acquisition, if you will, to the to the to the extent that now the batch size is I need one person or I need five people for one shift and I need them in three hours. And so it's really the ability for businesses to scale their labor capacity up and down to meet their demand, which is really what just in time is about. Mm -hmm. right? The um, right people in the right place in the right time. Exactly. So um, how how is that? I mean, how is that different? You know, Toyota uses temporary labor, but I think it's usually more of an extended contract, but right. without the guarantee of quote unquote, um, you know, permanent employment or you know, Toyota will. In, in downtimes, let go contract labor while protecting full-time jobs. How, how does this fit into to concepts like that? Yeah, so we are absolutely not a staffing agency or a tapping agency. Uh, that it, we're absolutely not that because <clears throat> um, the way we create the digital marketplace is that you as a business get to choose um, who goes into, we call it a labor pool. So you, you basically contract with operators um, and you rate those operators, just like you know Uber rates a driver. Um, so you find the operators that you need and those that you like, you then put into a labor pool. And the idea is that this labor pool is, it's like the equivalent of a supermarket, but it's for labor. And you pull from that labor pool when and where you need labor. So, so it's a very, very different uh, model than the temp model. So yeah, we are absolutely not about, um, you know, um, stat, staffing. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I'm just curious to think a little bit more a use case of, in talking about customers or clients, what, what, what types of companies would... Um, Utilize labor is uh, how skilled are we looking at? You know, relatively unskilled roles, or like what? What's the range of of labor within these labor pools or markets? It is uh, for now at least it's general labor, right? And we we specially we work only in, for industrial and logistics customers. So we specialize in industry. And logistics, uh, but yes, a lot of our a lot of our people on the operator side uh, are just general labor. Um, so we don't have consultants, for instance, on on the platform. It's yeah, yeah. it's an hourly labor. Uh, and and would would that labor pool have an expectation? Uh, what what would their expectations be in terms of? how much work they would have over the course of the week or how many different environments they, they might be in over time? Well, that's a very interesting question, Mark, because I think one of the reasons we're doing quite well in terms of growing, uh, I mean, we're in the U.S., mostly in Southwest, Southeast, Midwest, and now starting in the Northeast, is a lot, a lot of the workforce today Values flexibility battle above all. Um, not everybody, but you know, there's a, a large number of workers who um, have just been treated so poorly. I think in terms of uh, being imposed overtime for long and long periods, and they've said, 
I don't want to work every weekend. I don't want to have overtime every day. And so a lot of them, and some of them also have family, you know, family uh, responsibilities or family reasons for not wanting to have a full-time job. So for various reasons, uh, there's a, a large a large number of workers today who are not looking for full-time. And, and that's the kind of people you'll find on the platform. So is it is it set up in a way that it sounds like the intent is for it to be win-win, not just for the companies utilizing labor on demand, but also for the people providing their labor and correct. Expenses. And um, by the way, I mean the 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 rate at which the op we call it an op is um, is priced is it's it's a market um, situation. So I mean I'm a if I'm an operator and I have a minimum threshold, then I'm going to look for only ops that meet my earnings threshold. And I can, by the way, I can also respond to a business bidding, um, offering a, a, an op with a counter bid. I say, well, I'll do it, but I want to pay that much. Yeah. So is there the equivalent? I mean, as a Uber user, uh, sometimes you get hit by surge price. <laughs> is there a similar concept then within, no, within that nothing market? like price surge pricing, or? no fees. No, I mean, we take a, a percentage basically, okay. uh, but there's yeah, no obligation, no commitment on either side. Yeah. And as opposed to Uber, I can actually counterbid uh, if I want to. <laughs> if I want to take the ride uh, yeah. at a certain price, I can say, I'll, I'll take you as a driver uh, at that price. Okay, well, it's very interesting. But it sounds like it's it's a unique model and um, something for 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 organizations where, like you said, if they if they can't level load in different ways, you know, depending on customer needs, customer delivery requirements, this this provides maybe a different degree of flexibility, not just materials but people. Um, you're not doing anything on the uh, the equipment space on that third piece. We're not doing anything, but there's nothing really that prevents this concept of using digital marketplaces to mm-hmm. extend. It's really about extending the concept of just a pie. Yeah, yeah. And then I guess, you know, final question when it comes down to, um, you know, uh, in, in, engaging employees. Um, I mean, it seems like there there could be a possibility here of you think of what, what somebody from a labor pool is bringing into your company, not just the ability to follow a job instruction, but you know, to to participate in improvement, I'm wondering what your experience yeah. or what your intent would be in terms of using um, the minds of, yeah. of people um, who are getting placed into a um, in, into something through variable. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that because uh, I don't know if you've had the same experience, but I've always had the experience that the people who are most creative and who bring best ideas are usually in their first few months of employment, like yeah. new employees. Fresh eyes. If, if I can get them into Kaizen, I will definitely do that because they usually burst with ideas. I, I think um, you know, that's always the, the issue when you go every day, day in and day out in the same environment, you kind of lose that uh, that cutting edge. Yeah, yeah. And I, I would hope companies in any industry or any setting are open to learning from new employees or temporary employees. I've run across two, uh, the, you know, the, the two alternatives in healthcare to make it black or white. Um, you know, I, I remember talking to uh, a quote unquote traveler, they'll use that term in healthcare, contract um, person, um, medical technologist was working in this hospital laboratory. And you know, I'm there as a consultant, I am engaging people and trying to understand the culture and getting them to participate in improvement. and. And I remember this, this, this guy uh, lamenting, you know, he, he would work at places for a couple of months at a time. And he's like, yeah, I mean, he, he had such a breadth of experiences in different organizations to have ideas to bring in from the outside. And he's like, yeah, nobody like no, nobody would ask him for that input. And it's just it's a it's an example of, I think, waste wasting talent, wasting human yeah. potential. And I have been in organizations. Um, that that very consciously and intentionally um, say basically, hey, you're new here. You're going to see things that we are now um, situa- situationally unaware of. If something 
is confusing or seem like there, there's, there, you know, please point out um, anything. There might be a good reason why we do it this way, but you also might be highlighting, hey, we've missed that. Um, here's a, a, a Kaizen opportunity. And, and boy, that that is something organizations are better off for tapping into. Yeah. So I will climb down from my soapbox and we will come in for uh, a dismount on the uh, the episode here. So again, we've been joined by uh, Gauthier Duval, uh, the director of the Lean Center of Excellence at Variable. And I encourage you, if you want to learn more about them or, or their model, um, go to variableops.com. There'll be a link in um, the show notes. And, uh, you know, Gauthier, if people want to reach out to you and learn more about this, if, uh, if they want to talk to you about it, how what's the best way to reach you? Well, you can go to the website, variableops.com, um, and there's a, you can reach me directly there. You, there's a form to contact me, contact the Lean Center of Excellence. We're doing all kinds of um, very interesting experiments trying to create new tools for Lean as it, as it rela- relates to labor. Um, so, All right. Well, I hope some folks reach out to you. Uh, Gautier, it's been nice. I'm getting to know you through the process of prepping for the episode and doing it here today. So thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.